I'm going to be looking um, really in a couple different places. I think I want to start, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and that's going to be our main text. But, I, but God had just kind of put this on my heart, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 20. I just want to just kind of in passing share this. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all can ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now God here asks us to know something that is unknowable. He asks us to know what is the depth of God's love. Who in the world could put a tape on that? He wants us to know what is the width and the breadth and, and, and the dimensions of the love that God has and then points to the inward expression or the inward experience and says, this is the power working within you in order to come to the knowledge of this unknowable thing. So what Paul is trying to get the church in Ephesus and all of us around the world to understand and to embrace is that the love of God, which is unknowable, can be known. That's a head scratcher, okay? But the way that Paul is saying this love can be known is it different than knowledge itself. See, if I'm always in my head, I'll never come to know what is the depth, the height, the length, and the uh, whatever of the knowledge and the love of God. The reason being is, is because it's infinite. It's got no uh, expression uh, mentally that I can log into my brain and into my mind to in order to come to that reality. So the no that Paul is saying here is the same no that we find throughout the Hebrew where in the Old Testament it talks about when a man and a woman come together, they know each other. It wasn't that they didn't know each other before. It was that when they had consummated the act, they had come into a oneness together that could not be explained by words, but could only be explained by a supernatural work that only God could do. Is that all right? I'm trying to wrap my head around it, okay? Work with me here. In other words, the mystery, Paul even calls marriage the mystery. So how are these two entities coming together to make one flesh? When they're obviously still two entities. And anybody that's married will tell you, it's a mystery. But God is trying to explain something to us that God can't merely be apprehended with our minds. He has to be experienced. In the spirit. Okay? And it's just like this. Have you ever tried to explain to a kid what romantic love is? 
That's hard. Right? It's almost impossible. And what you really say is, I don't have words. But I can tell you when you come of age, you'll know the experience when you've had it. I hope somebody does. Y'all, y'all with me here? I don't That's some sad married folk up in here. Right? It's like the idea, like Kennedy started this thing. Matt, uh, Dad, where's the baby come from? How did it get, you know, and we're just like, I think Em told him a, a God inserted it through a belly button or something like that. It's like you're trying to figure out because you can't explain something so intimate and so whatever. It only can be explained by the experience in the private place. Well, I thought it was good. Anyway. So God is bringing us into this knowledge of love, but it's not going to happen separate from us experiencing Him in our inner man by the Spirit of God. It's only going to come by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? Because if we don't know God, if we haven't come into relationship with Him, we will reflect an image that is contrary to His nature. And what we know of God is what we will reflect of God. If we think God is a pompous, arrogant, smarty pants, guess what? You're going to be a pompous, arrogant, smarty pants. Because what you believe about God will shape the way in which you live. If you think God is an angry dictator, let me tell you something. You will be an angry dictator and no fun to be around. Are you hearing me? But if you begin to experience God in the essence of who he actually is, you will be displaying an image into the world that is correct that people can look at and see your good works and give glory to the Father that is in heaven. And this is our great duty in knowing God that we might reflect the proper image into the entire universe. But we can't reflect that image until we know who he is. Otherwise, we will just be doing a facsimile of things that we believe about God or have been taught about God through the years, and we will have no personal experience ourselves. And you can get a long way on the testimonies of others and miss God altogether yourself. Because it's not proximity. You have two thieves on the cross... One gets it, and the other one dies in the shadow of the cross, lost. So you can be in the shadow of the cross and still be lost. And so you've got to ask yourself, have I actually been born again? Have I experienced this God? Not have I come to church, not did I get baptized as an infant, not any of these things, have I actually experienced this God? And if I have, does my life look like Jesus? Because Jesus is the perfect expression of God. We can't know what we've not experienced. And Jesus puts an amazing pressure on us when he says, do you know how you're gonna, they're going to know you're my disciples? They're going to know it 
by the quality of love that you have for each other. Say, come on, God, don't do that. Don't make it where it's on us. But see, God never challenges us with anything that He's not equipped us to walk out and to live out. So when you see a charge in the Bible that seems supernatural, guess what? It is, but God has given you the grace to walk each and every one of those commands out. He's given us the grace. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is, the, is the, kind of the main subject here, but I want to give you a little backstory. David is a, a type of Messiah. Uh, that's why they call Jesus the son of David, is that there was this idea that began to develop within Jewish thought and theology that there was a coming king, and this king was going to look a lot like King David, and he was going to bring them back to prominence and bring the, the Jewish people back to, um, bring them back to their proper place and, and God's idea and his plan of human history. And the, so the Jews began to, to really lock on, and there was this idea, Messiah ben David, or, or Messiah son of David, and that they were looking for this conqueror to come, this mighty warrior. But there was this other idea in Jewish thought called Messiah ben Joseph. And they understood that there was this idea that there's a suffering servant, and this suffering servant was rose to power like Joseph, not with an army or not with, uh, he didn't slay any giants. He just suffered in the right kind of way, and by doing that, he preserved his people, and it was elevated to a, stat, to a place of rulership. And so we have these two realities that were competing in the Jewish mind, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David, and they really couldn't recon reconcile the other, and matter of fact, to this day, the Jewish people are still wrestling with that reality of what is going on here. And so they've said that they are the great sufferers of history because of the persecution that the Jewish people have experienced and that they are the great sufferers and that yet there is coming a David that will come and bring them back to prominence. And so there is this tough uh, to reconcile. But, but when I look at David's life, I don't see just a smooth path with no trouble. His path, the kingship, had just as much suffering as did Joseph. Uh, so it's not that David is without suffering. There's more words in the Old Testament about David and from David than Moses or any other uh, people combined. We could say this, that the Old Testament is the story of David. It takes up the most real estate. And so the story really starts with another king by the name of Saul. And where Saul messes up is he's told to be the God's instrument of judgment on these people called the Amalekites. And he's told to devote King Agag and his entire city to destruction and not to leave even an animal Alive. Now, and this is where the Bible gets kind of tricky here because this is God asking a people to be his instrument of judgment in the earth. So, whenever God was choosing them to do that, 
He wasn't choosing them based on their goodness or they were so much better than these people. He's doing it to instill and to get across his sovereign will in the universe. But Saul spares some animals and he spares the king. And he, he's almost as if he's saying, like, uh, this was a, a better idea because we can use these uh, sheep for a sacrifice. And look, we can show that we're merciful by permitting this king to live. And in normal war protocol, it was okay to conquer someone and then uh, pl uh, plunder the conquered foes and to pad your pockets. But, but this instance, God is trying to show his judgment. This would be as if a hangman hung somebody and then emptied his pockets and put the money in his own. That this was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. Because instead of embracing the severity of God's judgment and coming away from it knowing we're no better than them and this same thing could have happened to us, they came with rejoicing as if God delighted in the punishment of the wicked. And this is what we must watch as a church, that we don't delight in the punishment of the wicked. If you delight in rebuking other people, you've got major problems. Your life's goal is not to rebuke people. Your life's goal is to love people. Thank you for those good amens. See, partial obedience is complete disobedience. And Saul and his men obeyed as far as it suited them. That is to say they did not obey God at all, but they only wanted to listen to their own inclinations, both in sparing the good and destroying the worthless. What was not worth carrying off was destroyed, not because of the command, but to save the trouble. that they carried back what they deemed suitable to carry back. What profited them? And when the judgment of God comes into your life and God begins to deal with you on an area, are you only dealing with what you really don't want anyway? Are you even handing over that thing that you love because God's saying, let it go? Are you only carrying what you consider a waste, but you'll carry the thing that's of value to you? See, to spare Amalek is equivalent to sparing some root of evil within ourselves. See, for us, Agag stands for an evil propensity of self-gratification. Where we put ourselves over God where we refuse to deal with our besetting sins and we cry out for mercy and it looks like mercy because maybe there's tears involved, but it's really not mercy. It's unrepentant angst because we want the blessing and not the blesser. God, we've got God in this box of God, fix my marriage like this, fix my finances like this, fix it. Like, and we turn God into our errand boy Instead of the sovereign Lord of the universe in which we're bowing a knee, now we've turned God into some kind of token slot machine. No wonder we love gambling. It's a, it's, it's a token slot machine. It's a quick fix. It's not 
a relationship that's living and breathing and honoring God. Something else. And the same man who claimed mercy by leaving sheep alive and a king alive, when he finds out David goes to the priest of Nob where the tabernacle of God was, he kills every single priest. This is the heart that would look merciful, but in actuality would kill all things of God if it could. That's why we have people that will risk their life to save the whales, but allow abortion to go on. It's revealed. An eagle egg has more rights than an unborn child. It looks like mercy. It looks like love. But it's in the end, it's death. And anything you're tolerating in your life will kill you. Separate you from God. I'm not trying to come down heavy on you, but it's life or death. And we need to get a hold of life. Because we got a world that's dying, and we don't got enough to save them. I'm going to tell you right now, we don't have enough right now. And it's going to take a deeper walk in order to see it. Oh, yeah, we're talking about David. Let's get back to David. So this young shepherd boy named David... And I love the repentance of Samuel because he is repenting that he anointed Saul in the first place. But do you realize something? The one who told him to anoint Saul was God. (laughs) But he's so entrenched into the heart of God that he even mourns when the person that God told him to chose fails because he feels intertwined with God in such a way that God's loss is his loss. And God's hurt is his hurt. But you can't stay there forever. And God says, hey, would you quit wipe the tears away? Do you not think I've got this figured out? Get your horn and fill it full of oil. I've got one that will outdo Saul and will be the standard in which people will be looking for the Jesus that is to come. And he anoints this man, David. And when he first gets in there, there's seven sons already lined up. But Samuel knows something's not right with these seven. These aren't the ones that God has chosen. And so he said, man, I'm just not getting it. Is there another? He said, well, there is one more. But you don't want him because he's somewhere watching sheep. Somewhere watching sheep. Now, in this day, watching sheep was kind of considered a crummy job. And so the dad already thinks it can't be the guy watching sheep. He's watching sheep. But David, while he's watching sheep, is enjoying the presence of God. So why doesn't David show up to the anointing ceremony? Because God is out here in the field, man. (laughs) And whether I smell like sheep, or whether I'm fighting lions, or bears, or giants, it doesn't matter if I'm at the anointing ceremony or in the field. God's everywhere I am, and when I invoke praises, He'll be right in the circumstance that I'm at. 
See, some of us are waiting for an anointing ceremony and waiting God for God to crown us. And what God's trying to get you to do is learn how to praise God right where you're at. And if you'd begin to praise God right where you're at, you'd begin to find out he's right there with you, whatever you're going through. Because God's in the field and he's at the anointing ceremony. He's at both places. It's this idea that Moses runs into when God says, I'm going to give you the land, just go. The people's disobedient. You know, all the promises are yours, just go. And Moses says, I'm not going over there, God, unless you go with us. See, there's an idea of being where God is and wanting to be exactly where He is that is our greatest joy. That David is anointed as king, but takes 18 years for that promise to manifest. That when we get the anointing to think that we are above being set down or moved to the side, or hey, wait a second, it's not your time yet, to be told to sit down and shut up sometimes is beyond us because we're anointed. Like, you're not anointed. You have a spirit of rebellion in your heart. And you have no authority because you don't submit to authority. Saul prays, God, don't take my kingdom. Solomon prays, give me wisdom. But David prays, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I'm just going to bless myself up here, okay? Because just because he's anointed doesn't mean his surroundings change immediately. He's submitting to the process that God would take him through so his character could be developed in order to handle the weight of future success. And when we won't submit to the process, we don't understand it all. It's why Jesus grabs a vine. I'm just going all over the place today, but that's okay. It's why Jesus grabs a vine and shows a cluster of grapes, and he's preaching to his disciples and says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And my Father... Yeah, you guys in King James. Dad's a vine dresser, okay. <laughs> so what is Jesus saying? Abide in him... Submit to the sovereign will of God and He'll get you to where you need to be. But not without the pruning that is a necessity. David slays Goliath and becomes a general in Saul's army. But KLAZ starts playing a top 40 hit. Saul has slain his thousands. But David... Ten thousands. And now King Saul's jealousy rages and David is dodging spears and on the run for his life. And the only one that has a, a, a window into Saul's oppression for healing is David when he plays his music. See, David gets close enough as he's running from Saul. He gets close enough to Saul where he even cuts his garment. To say, look, I could have killed you. But you know what? 
David begins to get, get convicted by even cutting the king's garment. If anybody had a right to cut a garment right there, it's David. And he's saying, oh, I defame the king of Israel. Oh, let us be careful before we reach our hands out and touch God's anointed and the ones God's put in place. They're not perfect. They're just people. They're just people. And if we put you under a microscope, what would you look like? What would you look like? I don't even know where we're at here, so just bear with me. So Saul's ill deeds finally catch up with him, and he falls on his own sword. And he and David's good friend, Saul's son Jonathan, all die in battle. And David is immediately accepted as king of Judah, but over time he unifies the entire kingdom of God. And David even brings the ark of God back to its rightful place in Jerusalem. David expands the empire from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. He opens up trade routes and the money begins to pour into Israel and they begin to experience economic pre precedence and they begin to be on the national stage as one of the most mighty nations with the mightiest king. The king has emerged victorious. But I want to tell you there's another narrative in this story. Because a king doesn't rise to power just for the fame of his own self. A real king rises to power in order to empower others. If you want to know a good leader, you'll start to see other people begin to walk in their callings that they're called to. See, true leadership empowers. And so there's a corollary here in David's rise to power. A pause button where we pause the life of David in order to highlight someone else. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 through 13. David asked. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Now this is a common question. Because when a king came into power, his first business or his first rule of order was to put down any threat from a previous empire or a previous leader and anybody in that lineage that might try to gain favor and say they're the rightful king. So David saying, is there anyone left in the house of Saul is common. Now what the next statement David says is not common. This is where we think David's maybe a few french fries short of a happy meal, okay? He says this, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness <laughs> for Jonathan's sake? Oh, God. In the Hebrew, if I can even say it, 
is kazed, which is the same word there for kindness. It really should be, uh, it's a way deeper word than that, but this is the best the translators thought they could do in this moment because it's just such a deep meaning. But it's the word, kindness there is the same word used throughout the Old Testament to where God describes his covenant relationship with his people. So what he's saying is, in, in a sense, is there anyone who I can show loving kindness? Uh, is there anybody I can show covenant relationship with the way you show it with me, God? Is there anybody that I can show grace on from the house of Saul? That God would stoop so low to save broken people. Man, you should have saw me when I got saved. Man, I was pitiful. Here was my prayer, okay? And I'm not saying this is the sinner's prayer to pray, okay? But it worked for me. And I came down to the altar and I said, God, I should have came to you when I had something left to offer you. But I've come to you and I've got nothing left to offer you. And I'm sorry and I repent of that. But maybe, God, if you want to do something with this life, God, do whatever you want to do because I'm tired of fighting. That was my glorious prayer. And what I didn't understand is, is God had to get me to the place where I didn't think I had anything left to offer so that anything he did in my life, I would not give myself glory for, but I would begin to give God the glory for everything he did in my life. We find out that this is where God finds us. After we've tried to kill the king, after we've tried to run him out of our life and take away the authority of the one that's actually anointed, he says, now it's time to show kindness and grace on this rebellious house because now they've been emptied of themselves. Verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's house named Ziba. And they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show grace? Oh, he puts God's there. To show God's grace. Wow. Well, that should tell us something. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. And at this point, David doesn't say, well, he's no prophet to me. Get him out of here. Verse 4, he says, where is he? <laughs> where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Mekir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Mekir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid. <laughs> 
David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. You see a kindness, this grace. I will surely show you grace for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. Yeah, that's eating good in the neighborhood. Verse 8, and Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice a dead dog like me. <laughs> then the king summoned Ziba. Saul stirred and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Do you see his words? I'm but a dead dog. But the king doesn't enter into the dialogue because he realizes he's been eating at the wrong table for too long. And that's why his words don't match up with his destiny. See, God needs your words to start matching up with your destiny if you're going to walk in the thing that God has. you got to quit calling yourself a dead dog because I don't care what you've done. It ain't about what you've done and why you're saved anyway. It was the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ shed on a cross, and that's why you have been reconciled unto God. Not of your own works, lest anybody should boast. So do you notice how the king doesn't even enter into the dialogue with him? I'm just a dead dog. And then look what David does. David just says, well, after what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summons Ziba. I've given your master's grace. He doesn't even listen to the dead dog comment. He doesn't even take time to like lift him up or like, oh, you're not a dead dog. Here, let me tell you, you are made in the image of God. Here, let's go back to the fall of Adam. And, and he just says, I ain't listening to that. I'm just going to step into the place of blessing and I'm going to pull you out of the dead dog status and I'm going to begin to anoint you and place you where I need you to be. It's like the prodigal son. Remember when he rehearses? Man, even the servants got it better than I got. I'm going to go back and be a servant. So he runs out and he says, all right, I'm ready to be a servant. And the dad's like, go get the fatted calf. Go get the sandal. Go. He doesn't even enter into dialogue. When we, we think it's godly when we uh, beat ourselves up or talk about how sorry we are. That is not godly. You are doing Satan's work for him. Matter of fact, he can clock out and just say, well, they'll take care of themselves. So I don't have to mess with them. And he takes a day off and you just beat yourself up and then give him the glory for it. Well, Satan's been after me all day. No, you've got the wrong mindset because you don't realize your place at the king's table. You ever seen a kid that had bad manners at the table? Oh, that's my kid. Let's move on. Right? It's because they don't know how to eat at the table. See, maturity is when we can come to the table and eat. Maturity is we know where, how to pull the seat out and how to pull the seat out for others and how to sit down and when's the time to pray and when's the time to say, pass the mashed potatoes. How to slow down your meal so that the conversation can begin to manifest the way it needs to unfold. See, there's proper etiquette at a table. 
But when you've never ate at that table, that's why it looks like a toddler throwing SpaghettiOs everywhere. That's why your life looks like spaghetti flung on a refrigerator. Uh, God's saying, learn how to pull up a seat and sit at the king's table and take your time and let him unfold this thing for you. Because right now you think you're a dead dog, but if you'll let him finish his work, he will complete the work that he started because he said he's faithful to do so. Patience, patience. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Even today, we're going to get to a conclusion. So I need you to be patient with me. See, Mephibosheth couldn't do anything for the king. The only reason Mephibosheth, I can't even say it now. Y'all, somebody's going to interpret that if I keep doing that. The only thing that Mephibosheth could do is show how loving the king actually was. You want to know your ministry? It ain't to be super powerful and big and bad. You know what your ministry is? To show how loving the king actually is. To be a trophy of grace that shows this is how wonderful Jesus is. And out of relationship flows every thing else. David had nothing to gain with by putting this. this was, he, David could have said, well, here's another one. Eating at my table. Right? We've done that with our kids. Man, they're just eating up my food and groceries. Get them out here, you know. Can't wait till they're grown. You know? But he made a lifelong commitment that he would always have a place to sit at the king's table. Mephibosheth wouldn't increase the kingdom's value one bit other than showing the glorious love of God and how gracious He is. Now Mephibosheth was dropped by somebody else. Mephibosheth's in a position handicapped not by his own fault. Is that the housemaid was worried he was going to be killed when they heard Saul had died, and so she takes him and hides, and in haste, he was dropped as a young child. See, some of us feel dropped. Some of us feel dropped by another. I think, God, why did you leave me out here and didn't show up? Where were you? And now we're in this place of low to bar. And I want to tell you something. It wasn't God that dropped you. But what the enemy meant for evil in the dropping, God says, oh great, now here's someone I can carry. Thank you for that golf clap. It's not going to get much better, so you guys are just going to have to. God loves to carry. Isaiah 46, 3 through 7, listen to this. We're coming to a close. Let's give them some hope, Justin. Get up here, that new guitar you've got. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. 
who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and will save. <laughs> to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift, their, uh, lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. See, some of us are tired because we've been carrying idols that we think are going to carry us. We've been carrying hurts and mindsets that we think are going to carry us. And God's saying, would you quit worshiping that thing? And would you let it go and let me carry you for a while, even unto your gray hairs? We serve a God who carries we serve a God who carries. You know, we'd like to look at the story and say, man, we're King David in this story. And we may be to some measure, but I think in all honesty, we're Mephibosheth. We're the ones that sang, before you can show the supernatural love of God, you're going to have to experience me and let me carry you. You're going to have to get outside of yourself. And you're going to have to let me get inside of you. And God does not consider the carrying a burden. It is the King's great delight to carry you to His table. <laughs> Would you come to His table today? Would you bow your heads with me?